welcome to Book This Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things collection development, readers' advisory, and reference right in your little ears. I'm your host, Susan McGuire, here to guide you on this journey of all things bookish and library land. Library work requires us to contain multitudes, and this episode of Shelf Care reflects that. First, I talked to Kelly Jensen from Book Riot about the insidious trend of book banning. And then I talked to Rebecca Vanuck from Library Reads about some forthcoming books your patrons will want to know about. Books come in, books go out. Folks excoriate us for having books available, and they want us to help pick out their next great read. That's oversimplifying things. And it fails to acknowledge that the victims of book banning, at least in its current iteration, are largely children. And the books being banned are largely by LGBTQ creators and writers of color. I don't want to make light of the situation, and my conversation with Kelly bears out how serious it is. But I also don't want to let the bad guys win. And even as we face a record number of book challenges, we still need to serve our patrons. So, if enjoy is the right word, enjoy these two very different bookish conversations right after these words from some friends. Want to share that great Booklist Reader's Advisory content with your patrons? Now it's easy with Booklist Reader, a selection of backlist booklists and best ofs designed with your patrons' reading needs in mind. Want to know the best book group books? Booklist Reader has a list. Looking for great middle grade graphic novels? There's a list for that. What about the best mysteries and thrillers on audio? You better believe Booklist Reader has a list for that, too. Best of all, the titles featured are already on your shelves, so no need for frustrating holds cues. Booklist Reader is included with your subscription to Booklist, so you can share this digital magazine on your library's website or newsletters. Find Booklist Reader on booklistonline.com reader hyphen issues and start sharing the great reader's advisory content with your patrons today. Kelly Jensen worked in libraries for years, and now she's an editor at Book Riot. She's been covering the rising tide of book challenges for Book Riot for over a year now. She and I sat down to talk about how she finds information on local book challenges, how recent book challenges are different and what's behind this new era, and what library workers can do in the face of such attempted censorship. Here's our conversation, and I'll have links to Book Riot and some of the other things we talk about in the show notes at booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. Okay, I'm here with Book Riot's Kelly Jensen, and we are talking about book challenges, which seems like a a pleasant euphemism right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So Kelly, let's talk about Book Riot and the work you've been doing for them. I've been following along, and I want to say you started covering these challenges pretty seriously about a year ago. Does that sound right, or is it longer ago, or...? You know, I have been writing about challenges at Book Riot since I started working there, but until the last year or so, it was more Mm one-off situations, but with the real growth in book challenges, it's been nonstop, particularly in the last year. Yeah. So I really appreciate these weekly roundups that you do. How do you find the stories? How do you find these challenges? I use a lot of different methods to find them. I am in a number of like progressive parent groups that share sometimes what's going on in their their districts. Mm -hmm. And I'm also in a number of the groups that are pushing for challenges. And that's been really interesting to see and to sort of anticipate what's coming. Because sometimes they will be having a discussion about 
a particular school district or a particular topic. So right now, many of them have talked about pride displays or Mm -hmm. pride book lists. And that's been such a useful way to sort of get ahead of where they're at. So those are those are two big things. But I do a lot of reading articles and going down rabbit holes when I find some kind of mention of a book challenge or something fishy going on. And I listen to and read uh, the minutes of a lot of school board meetings. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And well, I want to talk about school boards, but but let's mm-hmm. talk about kind of the nature of these challenges. You know, book challenges are not a new thing. Right. But it feels different now. How how do you think these challenges are different from kind of the one-off challenges we've had in the past? Is it the volume? Is it the types of books or it's it's a little bit of all of them. So in the last year in particular, a number of parental rights groups have popped up. A couple of big ones include Moms for Liberty and No Left Turn in Education. Uh, Moms for Liberty is based out of Florida and No Left Turn is out of Pennsylvania, but they operate nationwide. They have their own uh, chapters nationwide. And a lot of what started these challenges and started these parental rights groups were issues of either critical race theory or Mm -hmm. comprehensive sex education. Those are the two big ones. There's also social emotional learning, which they connect with both comprehensive sex ed and with critical race theory. And so these three topics have become big ones in these parental right groups, both the nationwide ones, and then ones that operate more on the local level. And so they've used these topics to really speak up about what they do and don't want their kids learning or engaging with at school. And a lot of it comes down to a very singular idea of what education should look like. And that singular idea is very straight and it's very white and it's very right wing Christian aligned. And they they aren't afraid to say this kind of stuff. So none of this is secret. And because they do have access to these very well-organized, large nationwide groups that are funded by really powerful groups and powerful individuals politically, they are able to create, I don't want to say hysteria, I hate that word and I hate calling it that, but they're able to create a lot of movement among people who want to do something. And I, I I sincerely believe that most of these individuals think they're doing something good, doing something important, but really they are pushing an agenda by these, by these groups. And that agenda is, you know, indoctrination. They call it indoctrination on the, the school side, but it's really indoctrination of a very specific belief system coming from these big groups. Yeah. And I, I know on Right, you've specifically said it's tied to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So it should be pretty clear when you look at what books are being challenged, that it's primarily books by and about queer people, by and about people of color, and then those who live at the intersection of both. And it comes not from fear of 
what their kids might have access to. Certainly that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But the big picture is maintaining white supremacy and maintaining this idea of white Christian education. And it becomes even clearer when you spend any time doing this research that one of the refrains that comes up over and over again is that parents need to pull their kids from the public schools. And they call them government schools. They don't call them public schools, which gives you kind of an idea of how they frame the education system. And so, you know, they're encouraging pulling from public schools and going into homeschool. And it's a really convenient way to sell some homeschooling curriculum, but it's also a way of them pushing to both destroy public education nationwide, but also to work through legislation that would create vouchers where they can get public or tax money for their private education. Right, right. And that's not a new fight, but it no. It's interesting that it's being tied to these book challenges. Yeah, and book challenges are are part of it. You know, it's it's a convenient way to create a lot of paperwork and create a lot of chaos and to really drive educators and librarians to the point where they're spending so much time on these issues that they can't do their jobs effectively. Right. They can't do their jobs well. And it's a way then for these right-wing groups to say, look at how you're wasting our taxpayer money. You can't even do your job effectively. So they're able to create these arguments and get at it from just 360 degrees. Yeah. And I mean, chaos is <laughs> the the opposite of how libraries like to operate. Right. Yeah. We like our systems and we like our policies. And the, the, the most common way to, to counteract book challenges ha, has been have a policy, you know, so have right. a collection development policy that says, and, and have a policy for when someone comes in and wants a challenge, they have to fill out a form, it has to go through, you know, different library staff have to evaluate the book, and then you decide. But it seems like these challenges are, are going around policy or are mm-hmm. getting libraries to policy is not working to fight these challenges, it seems. Right. And there is a great report out from PEN America, and I wish I can give you the actual numbers, but the bulk of books that have been pulled from schools have not followed their own policies. So the policies are great when they're followed, but that's not been the case. And I think there are a few reasons for this. One, I think the policies are too open-ended. They allow for far too much wiggle room. And I think that it, it this is especially true when it comes to um, informal challenges that pop up. I think that that's really fertile ground for silent censorship that might be intentional, but also be unintentional. Um, if not everybody in the library or in the school or on the school board is on the same page about the processes that happen. Like it's easy in the moment to be like, oh, you know, I'm not trained. I didn't buy the book. Yeah, it looks inappropriate. Like this parent's yelling at me, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe the smart thing to do is pull it. And, you know, I feel I feel for those people like that. It's a tough place to be in. But I also think that the policies just are 
too open to interpretation and a lot of the ways that these particular groups who are doing this work are getting around these policies is by putting their supporters into roles on school boards and school boards are then either ignoring the policy or choosing to interpret the policy how they how they wish to interpret it mm-hmm. and you know uh, policies are great and they they should exist but i think we're at a point now where it's important to reevaluate these policies and put stronger ones into place and to have very clear very transparent like timelines for how all of this happens transparency around how much these cost to put a book through a challenge start to finish and then what gets lost along the way when this happens over and over um if taxpayer money is at the heart of number of these fights then that response should come through the same language you know your your tax money is going to challenge the tax money being used during these challenges amounts to, you know, $700 a person on the committee. And there are 10 people on the committee. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And I think that being more clear, being a little bit stricter on the policies allows the folks to challenge materials. Like that's a right people have, and it shouldn't be taken away. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, the right to freedom of access is, also a right. So, you know, putting those protections in place on both sides is, I think, where some more energy needs to be spent right now. And I think there's, it feels like there's a a difference in the kind of challenge, like old, you know, the old fashioned kind of challenge was maybe done in good faith. And this, these challenges seem more sinister. I, I think that we could compare what's going on now to what happened in the early 90s. There was a big similar push for book challenges then. And I wish I could give you more details on it, but like my history is a little not as thorough as I wish it would be. Yeah. But it was it was an attack from the Christian right for similar reasons. And you could see the money coming in from these big organizations. And it was the push for family-friendly libraries. And it, it's similar to what's going on now. Now we have the benefit or the, I guess you can say, challenge of social media allowing even more people um, access to this uh, movement. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that has come of this is parents are finding that they get to play the role of hero when they show up at a school board meeting and put on theatrics and, right. you know, it gets to be on a video and it gets shared through all the right wing channels and they get their 15 minutes. So I think there's similarities there, but what you say is, is correct that I think besides this example and the, uh, what happened in the nineties, a lot of it I think is more misunderstanding or like a a true personal conviction about uh, materials, not being suitable for, whatever that community is. I don't know if you remember, but you know, in the late 2000s, there were a lot of graphic no- novels that were challenged because folks didn't understand the format. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so more education around that certainly helped it become 
more accepted and like, we've seen fewer challenges of graphic materials until now. Um, and now we know that, you know, the most challenged book is a graphic memoir. Yeah. That's genderqueer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Moms for Liberty. And mm-hmm. I, I know you've talked a little bit about something they do called book looks. Can you talk about what that is? Oh, yes. How much you so- love it? <laughs> I love it. So there are uh, Moms for Liberty. Let me give a little background on them. They mm-hmm. found in early 2021, late 2021, I believe. And they are founded out, they, they were founded in Florida by three women, two of whom had unsuccessful board runs at their local school district. So they created this group to give parents a voice. Now Moms for Liberty claims they have what 100,000 members nationwide. It's hard to say they can make up whatever number they want. We don't really know what the true true number is. Right. And they operate on the county level, so they're able to get local, but they get a lot of their information from the national group. So a lot of times if you see a certain wave of titles being challenged across the country. It probably started in Florida. It probably started in, I think it's Brevard County is where it starts. Mm -hmm. And this is also where Book Looks was founded. Book Looks is a rating system that looks like it's, I don't want to say objective, just like knowing what I know, it doesn't look objective at all. But for the average person who doesn't have a background in libraries, who doesn't have a background in the book world, it looks fairly objective. It's based on the movie rating system. So you've got your G through your NC-17. And volunteers through this organization that looks like it is a standalone organization read these books and they assign it a rating based on sexual content, based on critical race theory content, which for anybody listening, like that doesn't exist in any of these books. You know, like there's a, a host of criteria they use and they are very specific in the kind of sexual activity that will get a book rated, you know, a three or a five. Those are you know, synonymous with PG-13 or NC-17. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like a fairly objective site to like a person outside of like the, the book world. But it is actually Moms for Liberty's site. They created this. They created the system. And it is put together by their volunteers. There is Book Looks. And then there's Books Look, I believe is what it is. They're two very, very similar things. They're the same material, same everything, except the title of the site is a little bit different. And they have been somehow getting this rating system into the hands of school boards. An interesting aside here is they mentioned the name of a school district that planned to adapt this system. And I did a little research and saw that indeed this school board had been talking about implementing a rating system. So I watched the school board meeting where they had the this discussion. And there was a board member on there who was very like, I don't know what you are all doing. You know, the books that have been challenged here were fine. They were age appropriate. There was nothing wrong. And I um, I reached out to her and I said, hey, just so you know, the person who 
was at your board meeting who proposed this rating system uh, is a member of your local Moms for Liberty group. And surprise, she got the list from BookLooks. BookLooks is a Moms for Liberty creation. Um, And that particular board member was even more disturbed then. And so I think that there's a lot of folks who are pushing this agenda in a way that is, is really surprising people who who are just unaware that all of this is going on and like for good reason why would you know all this is going on unless you are you know in deep um unless you are dedicating hours a week to like finding this stuff out and I think that we're gonna see that continue to happen yikes yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so let's talk about library boards and school boards it seems like sort of going along with this policies being ignored Mm -hmm. school boards and I guess library boards in particular are getting on board with no pun intended are getting on board with (laughs) taking these challenges seriously Mm -hmm. is that are boards changing are how are how are library boards kind of falling for this rhetoric so there's there's a couple things to unpack here is first it's it's a little tricky to talk about public library boards because some are appointed some are elected so mm-hmm. it it you know at this point it's still too hard to sort of untangle what is and isn't happening but there are library boards that have gone through elections and those elections have really changed the policies as well as just all of the inner workings of the library. So Niles Main West Public Library in Illinois is a good example. They had a had an election last year and it was taken over by very far right individuals who really destroyed the library and everything that it stood for. I wrote about that on Book Riot and and you're welcome to look at that, but I think that that is sort of symbolic of what can happen and does happen to these elected boards. But I think it also happens in appointed boards. If not enough people submit, you know, an application that they're interested in being on their library boards, they are left with the people who are. And sometimes that means people who have an agenda are the ones who end up on the board. So then school library boards, I think, is what's really interesting right now in that they are really becoming battlegrounds of politics that in most states, not all, they are nonpartisan races, and yet the people who are running for these positions are running on very clear partisan agendas. Mm-hmm. And so you see this, you know, you see it in the language, and more and more candidates are talking about appropriateness of books and mm-hmm. running on an anti-CRT agenda. Um, it's It's frightening and it's fascinating to start reading, you know, like, local newspapers highlighting the candidates and being like, okay, well, I don't want to vote for, you know, George, you know, George Smith, because he says he is for pulling obscene books out of the library, which not a thing that exists in the library. Um, But it's that kind of rhetoric and that kind of phrasing that really gets parents who I think really and truly are concerned and feel like they have not been part of their children's education to to say, oh yeah, I don't I don't believe in porn in the library either. Right. You know, and these big groups are pushing candidates and they are also able to find funding to help make certain races mm-hmm. um, turn out the way that they they wish to. There 
down in Florida, the Moms for Liberty, one of the counties, I can't remember which, had a forum of school board candidates. Like they held a whole forum for people running in the school board. And it's like, wait a minute. They're organized. Yeah, that's the thing. They're so organized. And I think that this could be a wake up call for community, you know, government bodies within a community such as the public library to be like, hey, why aren't we open ha- having these sorts of forums here? Like, mm-hmm. why are we not inviting, you know, all the candidates for school board here to talk about what they care about? Um, you know, it's it's a role that I think used to be really taken up by local newspapers, but as local newspapers have died, you know, yes. there, there have been fewer and fewer places for these sorts of discussions. And some of these candidates have really taken advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting to watch what happens because as these people are elected onto boards, you know, they're there for two to four years, depending state what position they're elected into on those boards. So they have the capacity to do a lot of changes yeah. in in that time frame. Yeah. So let's let's bring it back to library workers. Yeah. You know, because that's that's really the primary audience of this podcast. And are you, what kind of effect does this have on library workers, like frontline public service staff and collection development librarians, readers, advisory librarians, like what, what kind of effect do you see this having on them? So I think first and foremost, there's going to be, and there has been a lot of the sort of quiet censorship where a book Mm -hmm. is either, not purchased or not recommended or not put on display just to ensure that there is not controversy that comes up around it. Clearly also censorship, like it's not good, but people who are put in that position of, do I want to deal with the consequences of this and what that means for my job? You know, they they have to make that choice. And Mm -hmm. I think for school librarians in particular, it's tricky to walk that line of, you know, do I purchase this material that is appropriate for my collection, knowing it could cause issues? Or do I say nothing because my job is important and I need to pay the bills? And, you know, it's, it's, there's not a winning place to be. I, I know a librarian who has been fighting and fighting and fighting for queer lit in his middle school library and has been fighting the same challenges since December of this year. And the only, I don't want to say the only, one of the big reasons he's been able to do that is he has a great supportive union. So he has been protected the whole time, but that's not a thing a lot of library workers have. Right. Right. And, you know, in that case, it stayed in the school. It was a, administrator who pulled the books. So it didn't come from outside, but now it's made the rounds into the public censorship groups um, in the community. So, you know, it's like the when you're in these positions, you could potentially have your name dragged everywhere. And and so I get it. Like, I, I get why folks would make the choice to not cause that controversy. I don't agree with it, but I get it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the big one right now. I think additionally, there's, 
I think there's going to be, and I hope there's going to be better understanding of what happens at these boards and more engagement from folks within the library, within the school library, getting to know their board and who's on it and who is their advocate, who's their ally. And I think the same goes for community members, knowing who in your community is your advocate, who will write letters to your board and say, thank you for having that pride display. It meant a lot. We checked out, you know, six books that we read with our kids. Um, Like the kind of stuff that I think we forget how how much of an impact it can have, but it does. So, right, because that's the thing too that it's hard to remember is how important these books are for people. Yeah, people need them. Mm-hmm. And I, I fear, and I've heard that you know there's probably going to be fewer books like this coming out because of the the challenge there is in finding places where it's safe for these books to be where it's safe for these wow. authors to do a school visit or yeah. um, a library visit. And that's such a loss for everybody. Right. You know, no matter what your race or your orientation, you know, these books are for everyone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So let's, let's end on as, as hopeful a note as we can. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you say to library workers who are, who are faced with challenges or who are seeing challenges in their libraries what what can they do what what words of hope do you have for them the big thing is there are a lot of people who are fighting to put this uh, put an end to this that there are a lot of people outside the library world who care deeply about what's going on within libraries and I know that one of the things that comes up sometimes is library workers are worried about going to the press or the media or talking about challenges that might be happening in their um, library. But there's a real benefit if you have allies in the media Mm -hmm. to say something. You know, I I think about the number of stories I've heard that I haven't written about because I was able to just send them to somebody who could help them. You know, somebody who is outside the library world or works with First Amendment rights issues and and have been able to guide them somewhere that ultimately got them some help or some some support that they felt they didn't have um it's it's hard you know you're you're working for your community and you are so focused on your community that you might not have the same connections outside of it to to get that support and that that ear just to listen to what's going on and be validated that that's not normal and it's not okay. And, you know, your, your organization is being targeted by these groups that don't care about you, but care about getting their name out there. So I guess my word of advice is know that there are people fighting for you and to reach out for help. You know, it, it might not solve your, your challenge the way that you want it to be solved, but it can certainly put you in touch with people who care deeply and want to to do everything they can for you. Right. And just knowing knowing there are people on your side when it mm-hmm. seems like there's nobody. Yeah. Is gonna make a big difference. Well, in the show notes, I'm gonna link to your coverage, your weekly coverage of book challenges and stuff so folks can check it out from there. Is there anything else you wanna end up with? No, just you know, 
I appreciate so much that you asked me to come on here and talk. And I, you know, this used to be such a small part of my job, but but it's become something much bigger. And as much as it can be challenging to keep reading these stories and keep seeing the same things happen over and over again, it's really heartening to see how many different organizations from all different backgrounds coming together to really find solutions and ensure that we keep having these books, that we keep having diverse books, that they continue mm-hmm. to be not just in the library, but talked about and shared and passed around and and spotlighted in the way that isn't about, you know, read band books, but instead about like, these books are here. And, and so I guess, yeah, my, you know, my takeaway and the last thing I want to impart on is like, keep an eye out, stuff is coming, stuff is happening. And I hate saying like, I'm excited about it. But the more calls I have with different organizations and groups, the more excited I get, because so many people are working on this and are sharing their knowledge and their resources and their connections to come up with a plan to push back. Good, because we need we need that organization and we need the people to fight with us. And I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate the coverage you've done and, and what your coworkers at Book Riot have done. It really helps. It's helped me keep on top of the issue. And I know it's helped a lot of library workers. Yeah, just keep on top of what's going on around the country. Yeah, it's it's a lot. You know, I I didn't mention this, but I'm a former librarian. Like I worked mm-hmm. in public libraries for years and had a couple of you know, low level challenges. And I say low level in that, like I responded and that was the end. Yeah. Remember when that used to be <laughs> how it worked? Right. And so I think about like how I felt in those situations and, and how I responded. And I'm like, uh, you know, just my hats off to everybody who's in this like thick now Mm -hmm. because it's not easy it wasn't easy before but now you know like literally your name and your reputation are on the line for simply doing your job Mm -hmm. well everyone keep up the good fight yep absolutely yeah thank you so much kelly yeah thank you so much say do you like reading do you like hearing what authors have to say about their writing then you've just got to hear the Shelf Care interview. It's a quick conversation between a book lister and a book person about their work, their inspiration, and whatever else we can fit in under 15 minutes. Hear Maggie Reagan talk to Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Hear Ronnie Curry chat with Susan Wadi Daraj and Simon Nurali about their series for young readers, Farah Rocks and Sadiq, or to Saba Tahir, Nicole Andelfinger, and Sonia Lau and their graphic novel, A Thief Among the Trees. Hear Julia Smith talk to Tracy Hecht about the Nocturnal series and more. Can you believe there's more? You can find the Shelf Care interview right on this here podcast feed or wherever you listen to Booklist Shelf Care the podcast. Happy listening! Switching gears entirely, Rebecca Vanuck is the executive director of Library Reads, and they helped us organize this year's Read and Rave at ALA's annual convention last month. What's a Read and Rave, you ask? It's when a panel of librarians get together and shout about some forthcoming books they think your patrons are going to want to know about. To make up for missing the event, Rebecca and I got together to do a mini Read and Rave of our own. Here it is, and all the titles we talked about are in the show notes at booklistonline.com shelf-care.
I'm here with Rebecca Vanuck, Executive Director of Library Reads. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Susan. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could join us. Do you want to take a quick second to remind folks what Library Reads is all about? I would love to do that. So Library Reads is a 501c6 not-for-profit group that was started 10 years ago, actually, in 2023. We'll be celebrating our 10-year anniversary. Uh, It was started by a group of Reader's Advisory Librarians who looked at the Indie Next list as an example of how bookstores were putting together their own for lack of a better word, bestseller type list. And they were like, hey, where's this for libraries, especially for adult books? There's lots of children's lists, not a whole lot of adult lists. And they came up with this. So now what we do, we publish a top 10 list plus Hall of Fame authors every month. And you can find that on our website, which is librarireads.org. And you can become part of creating that list. Uh, Sometimes people have the misconception that The board members choose the list, or I choose the list, or only top well-known readers' advisory librarians choose the list. Not true. It's anybody who works in a public library in the United States at any job title. You can download your books off of NetGalley and Edelweiss, or you can use your print copies you get at conference or in the mail, and you place your votes. We count those votes, we tally them up, and we come up with our top 10 list. And that is the basics of what we do. I love it. It's so democratic. It is. And it's helpful. I used to hang up library reads in my library every month. Yes, that's what we hope. We create the list as this lovely PDF version that is printable. It's got all the book jackets on it. One of the special things that we like about our list is our library staff voters also have the chance to write little three or four sentence annotations to go along with it. And they are Uh credited on that. So you're really getting library staff true recommendations. The real deal. The real deal. I love it. And Library Reads also helped us organize the Read and Rave at annual this year, which we couldn't record, unfortunately. (laughs) But um, I'll make that list of books that we talked about available in the show notes so you can live slightly vicariously. And if you want to live even more vicariously through it, Rebecca and I are going to do our own little read and rave right now, where we talk about a handful of books that we know are coming up and that we think that library patrons should know about. So Rebecca, I'm going to let you go first because you're the guest. All right. I'm going to start off with an author that we actually featured at a panel at ALA Annual, and it is Shudder by Ramona Emerson. This comes out in August from our friends at Penguin Random House. And boy, where to start with this? So this has got all of the things that I like, right? It is suspense. It is supernaturally tinged. So it's going to be good for your readers who like suspense, who like supernatural slash horror. Uh, Ramona Emerson is the author and she is a member of the Navajo Nation and so her character is Navajo and basically her character Rita is a forensic photographer which means she goes to crime scenes and takes all the pictures but one of the interesting things about Rita is she has the ability to see ghosts 
which in Native American tradition is really tricky. <laughs> it's it, They take that very seriously. It's not something to be proud of. It's something a little frightening and supernatural and scary. So she keeps it a little bit of a secret, but it gives her the ability to help detectives on the scene figure out their crimes because she can talk to the dead murder victims and get things figured out. So it's very exciting. Um, I think what's extra cool about this. Um, oh, and I'm sorry. It's actually Soho Crime is the uh, publisher on this. Okay. Soho Crime. So one of the really cool things about this is Ramona Emerson, the author, is also a famous photographer and film director and writer. And so she has been able to put a lot of her personal experiences into this, being a Native American woman, being a filmmaker and photographer. I did have the chance to ask her at our event whether or not she can see ghosts. And she said yeah. no. So, you know, sometimes mm. fiction is just fiction. Or so uh, she but, says. Uh, <laughs> right? She wouldn't admit but, to being able right? to Right? She ghosts. wouldn't tell me. Um, but this definitely adds a really interesting layer to the book that she, you know, she knows her stuff when it comes to like filmography and all that kind of stuff. So that gets a high recommendation for me coming out in August from Soho Crime. Cool. Well, I have something that might be the opposite. Yeah. Always fun. Yeah. It's called um, The Lost Ticket by Freya Sampson. And it comes out from Berkeley in August. And Freya Sampson, her books are not dark and mysterious at all. First book was The Last Chance Library, which I think was a library reads pick last year. So I'm pretty too, sure. Yes. It has it has a little bit of a silly premise. Um, a man met a woman on a bus. She wrote her number down on a ticket for him and he lost it. And so 60 years later, he's still looking for this mystery bus woman. And he's 60, become, years 60 years later? years later. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> he's this old man who's sort of a fixture on this number 33 bus in London. And this down on her luck woman, she's just getting off a bad breakup. She's living with her sister and her family. She gets on the bus and she's like has overloaded with suitcases and drops everything and drops everything at the feet of this guy, Frank. And she becomes obsessed with helping him find, you know, his mystery, mystery bus woman. And they enlist his carer in the, in the plot. He's a punk guy. He has like a Mohawk hairdo and he's a real, he's, he's a tough guy, but he has a real soft spot for Frank. And the book is just full of quirky characters. If you like quirky characters, if you like found family, that those kinds of themes, you will love this book. It's very sweet. And it also has some, a little bit of commentary on how we treat the elderly because Frank is starting to suffer with dementia. But it's not a heavy book. Okay. So if you like, I think, uh, what's her name? Felicity Hayes McCoy writes these books set on an Irish peninsula about like a library in an Irish peninsula. And so even though the lost ticket is set in London, it has a real small town feel because the radius of, you know, it's just basically set along this bus route so that it's a good match for Felicity Hayes McCoy. And I think also even for Debbie McComber, if you like this kind of sweet tearjerker story, and I know every librarian has Debbie McComber fans, if they want to try something British, try the lost ticket out from Berkeley in August. All right. My mom is a huge Debbie McComber fan. So well, she I'll should have try to, it. I will suggest that to her for sure. All right. My next one is one that actually is out, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. 
Uh, it came out in May. I figured that's close enough. And it yeah. did hit our library reads list because it's from author Jasmine Guillory, who is one of our Hall of Fame oh, authors. Yeah, I love her. Yes. And the reason I wanted to discuss this is because I love this little series that Hyperion is putting out right now. This one is called By the Book, and it is basically a retelling-ish. They're calling it a reimagining, which I like that better than retelling. It's a reimagining of Beauty and the Beast. They came out last year. So they have this new sort of sub-series that's called Meant to Be Novels. And they came out last year with one called If the Shoe Fits, which was a reimagining of the Cinderella fairy tale. And that was about this very fun young woman who is a shoe designer, kind of lost in her life, doesn't know what to do. And on a crazy whim, she goes out and auditions for a bachelor type TV show. Yes, I love those books. Right? Like it was so charming and I really, really enjoyed it. And so I had to pick up this one because right, Jasmine Guillory, love her. What I really appreciated about this is Beauty and the Beast story is kind of weird, right? Like when you Mm -hmm. think about it. And so updating it to modern times definitely works better. You can take some of the creepy elements out of it. Oh, he doesn't keep her prisoner? Right. There's no, exactly. (laughs) That is exactly it. I love that. So in this one, we have Isabel, who is one of the few young Black employees at a publishing house, which, of course, I love anything that's set in publishing or libraries or the book world. So she is overworked, underpaid, and her boss is complaining about one of their high-profile authors who is late on handing in his manuscript. So Isabel decides she's going to go over to this dude's mansion and get this manuscript from him. And of course, because he is the beast, quote unquote, she falls madly in love, all kinds of bookish stuff. It's a great retelling. Love that kind of thing. So this is out already. It came out in May this year from Hyperion Disney Books. I love it. I love a good retelling or a good fairy tale reimagining. Right. Because you already know what's happening, but you don't know. Like you already know what's going to happen, but you don't know how the author is going to interpret it for the new setting. And that's always really exciting. Exactly. And that's the gift of it. I have to admit at first, now this one, it was very obvious. It was Beauty and the Beast. In the first one in the series that I read, I wasn't really clear it was Cinderella until we got into it further. (laughs) So I was like, oh, like she didn't follow the whole, oh, drudge, stepsisters, oh no, I'm the scullery maid, right? But it had, yeah. So it was a perfect reimagining of it. Loved it. Nice. All right. I have another, well, it's not quite as gentle, but it's a, it's look, it's chiclet. And I know we don't love chiclet, chiclet. but I love, I love reading it. So it's by Mary McFarlane. And I think that's how you say her first name. She's Irish. So it's spelled M-H-A-I-R-I, which. Oh, yes. I know it's, it is pronounced not as Mary. If you look it up on her website, she's like, okay, nobody knows how to say my name. So yes, I know who you're talking about though. Well, anyway, M-H-A-I-R-I McFarlane. Mm -hmm. She's not really new to the scene. This is like her eighth book, but she doesn't, I feel like she doesn't get the renown she deserves. I feel like more people need to know about her. So her new book is called Mad About You. Uh, It comes out from Avon in August. And it features this gal, Harriet, who's a wedding photographer. And she is she starts the book thinking about 
the state of her relationship with her boyfriend and, and whether or not she should dump him when he proposes on holiday in front of his entire family. So that doesn't work out for her. She has to move out really quickly. So she just takes a room at a house and it turns out the, the owner of the house she's living in is a runaway groom from one of the weddings she had worked out a few months earlier. So she's like, well, he's charming and he's handsome, but he's obviously not a great guy because he abandoned his wife at the altar. So there's no danger of her falling in love with him. Then it takes a, a slightly serious turn because at another at wedding, she runs into an ex-boyfriend who was cruel. He was emotionally abusive to her. And it has kind of a flashback of how he used to treat her, which is like not cool. And this guy, after he runs into her, he writes a Facebook post accusing her of the abuse that he perpetrated. Ooh. And it almost destroys her business because she's just a one woman show. So people find her and they're like, how could you do this to him and all this stuff. But another thing it does is it brings a couple of his other ex-girlfriends out of the woodwork and together they come up with a plot for some hilarious revenge. So you know, if you like the way that Marion Keys blends a, like a serious issue with but a really funny book, I think you'll like Harry McFarlane. <laughs> so give her a try. I will look for that. What's the title on that one again? Mad About You. So try Mad not to get you. the Belinda Carlisle song. I was just going to say the Belinda Carlisle song. <laughs> it's been in my head all day. My God. Oh, well, then this is a good segue into my next book because uh, I end up doing that a lot. There's always music running through my head. And my next book to talk about is a thriller called I Remember You. So I have the, the Ella Fitzgerald version of that jazz classic constantly running through my head because this book is on my nightstand as my next book to read. And so every time I'm in my room, I see it, I think it, I sing it. So this is I Remember You, a thriller by Brian Freeman. And this comes out on August 9th. It is a Thomas and Mercer book. And Brian Freeman is... This unbelievably prolific author, he has two long-running thriller series. He has multiple standalones. And a few years back, he was tapped by the estate to write the Jason Bourne books. So Guy has like four or five books coming out every year and just nonstop. And they're all fantastic. His standalones in particular tend to be psychological thrillers heavy on the psychological part. There are lots of twists and turns and they keep you guessing. And in this one, it is a young woman who basically she has this accident at a rooftop party in Las Vegas and, you know, has one of those out of body, like I've died experiences. But then hours later she wakes up, she's in the hospital and she's alive. So she's been revived but there's someone else in her head. So somewhere along the line, you know, she died and someone else was like, Woo, I'm going to take over. And so now she's, right. So she's got this like dual personality and she's like, all right, am I having mental health issues right now? Or am I being taken over by something? What is going on? And she starts to see these, she has these nightmares that are very vivid and she sees someone get murdered and she's like okay did that happen in real life who can I alert to help this why am I remembering this 
So it's a fun kind of roller coaster ride. And it's, I, I always recommend anything by Brian Freeman anytime I get the chance. Love a roller coaster. I do too. I just entertain me, people. That's all I'm looking for. So my next book is also high concept, but it's a lot quieter, I think. It's called Lark Ascending by Silas House. And it comes out from Algonquin in September. And this book blew my little heart away. I couldn't handle it. It was so good. I I couldn't stop crying for about it for like a week after I read it. Oh, that's a good recommendation. My emotional problems are maybe not the subject of this <laughs> podcast. But, but the way that he writes just sticks with you and is so moving. But it's set in a post-apocalyptic world where the U.S. has basically been consumed by wildfires and other climate disasters. It's run by a fundamentalist government. Gosh, can't can't imagine any of that happening. Scary. And the book opens with 20-year-old Lark and his parents. They're crammed on a yacht to on their way to Ireland because Ireland is rumored to still be accepting refugees from from the US. So it's it starts out with this terrifying journey and Ireland is not quite what everyone expected. And Lark is the only survivor of this boat journey. But despite all this loss and horror that he's gone through, he knows he needs to get to this place called Glendalough, I think is how you say it, which his mother always told him that she felt like it was going to be a sanctuary. So that destination becomes sort of a beacon of hope for him as he traipses through the countryside, which is completely barren. I mean, it's full of, it's woods still but it's abandoned like he the only people he runs into are dangerous so he is on his own until he runs into a dog named Seamus which is a real surprise because at the beginning of this worldwide famine all pets were put down so there aren't supposed to be any more dogs but then he finds this dog and the dog becomes his companion on this journey and it's another sort of beacon of hope for him and that talking about like hope in a post-apocalyptic atmosphere sounds like it could be really hokey, but it's not. It's, I mean, the relationship between this boy and his dog is so profound and the story is so moving and it's, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic story. So of course I'm going to recommend it for folks like station 11, but I really mean it. And also the dog stars by Peter Heller, which is another kind of lonely post-apocalyptic journey. And it comes out in September. So I definitely think I could be a library reads contender. That's Lark Ascending by Silas House. You'll cry. I like to cry. TM. Yeah. Cry a lot. No, that sounds like that is right up my alley. I love some some good post-apocalyptic stuff, especially if it's got some hopefulness to it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Do I get one more? Two more? How many do I get more? You can have one or two, whatever you okay, I'll take. I'll take one more because I'm actually going to plug three in one. Okay. And what I'm going to plug here is the reading journals that were published earlier this year by ALA and our friends at Sourcebooks Yay. and our friends at Booklist because they had a lot to do with these too. This is the 52 award-winning titles every book lover should read, 52 diverse titles every book lover should read, and if you are so inclined, 52 YA books every book lover should read. And one of the reasons I love telling people about these books is they are truly 
take your time and do it yourself. Yes, there are 52 slots for entries. Yes, the point is if you're reading a book of a week, you can have a year's worth of reading. However, they are not dated. So you yeah. can take as long <laughs> as you want to read those 52 books. And what I particularly like about it, there's plenty of space to jot down your own notes. I know a lot of us use Goodreads, for example, I still am not a huge fan of them. I miss back in the day having Shelfari. That was my jam. Oh, yeah. The interface on that was really cool. And I'm sad. I don't like Goodreads as much. And this is a way to keep track of your books without having to be online, without having other people get to see what it is. And someday when your data disappears, you'll still have your written book at least. Yay. And the best thing about it is these are wonderful for people who are in a reading slump and need prompts on what to read. So that's the thing. They have 52 suggestions to read. And the best part about it is there is a simple one-page description of the book, one paragraph that comes, I believe, all of them, if not all of them, most of them, come directly from the book list review of the book. Is that right, Yep. And so, hello, the book experts telling you what to read. Who could ask for anything more? I absolutely love that. And I really, I know so many people, myself included, who during the pandemic, even pre-pandemic, found ourselves in reading slumps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, we get these wonderful galleys and that is super helpful. But sometimes you just want someone to be like, here, here's a book to read. And we all, like most of us, I should say at least, need to be reading widely. And so having 52 diverse books right in your hot little hands to pick out and space for you to put your notes. There's a little star chart where you can fill in your stars. If if, if that's what you're used to on Goodreads and all of that, they are just lovely. I absolutely adore this trio. So I wanted to make sure I give them a plug. That's awesome. And I also love that it gives you like a little space for reflection because I think if you read a lot, Yes. And to kind of go quickly on to the next book. So those journals are wonderful. They really, they're, they're so cool. Love them. Love them. I love it. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Yay. Yay. So thank you for raving about some good books. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And everybody go on NetGalley and Edelweiss and vote for your library reads picks. Yes. Yes. And visit libraryreads.org. And thanks for listening. That's it for this episode of Shelf Care, the podcast. I hope these conversations about books get you fired up, whether it is to make great suggestions to patrons or to defend patrons' right to read what they want. Thank you to Kelly and Rebecca for chatting with me. And just a reminder that all of the titles we discussed will be in the show notes at booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. Happy reading! Happy reading!